I'm Jason Van Medding. And I'm Ksenia Chmutanen. Welcome to Disasters Deconstructed Podcast. Hi, Ali. Welcome. It's an absolute pleasure to have you here. We're actually in the same room, which is super rare for either Jason and I to have guests in the room. So today we have Ali Stoneman uh, with us. Um, Ali is a poet and a researcher and also a really, really good friend. So it's absolutely wonderful to have you. Welcome. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. It's really nice to be here. So, and I've got my nice cup of tea and I'm comfy. And maybe I'm inspired. I'm maybe inspired. Hey, Ali, nice to meet you. Yeah, lovely to meet you, Jason. Um, so we thought maybe we'd just start off by asking you to give us a bit of background about your research and about your poetry. Okay, yeah, of course. Um, so I'm an AHRC-funded um, Midlands Four Cities PhD researcher. I'm based in the School of English at Nottingham Trent University here in the UK. Um, and I'm doing a creative and critical thesis that explores representations of coastal change in contemporary poetry and includes the production of new creative work in the form of poems. And um, I'm kind of using coastal change poetry as an umbrella term for poems engaging with sea level rise, coastal flooding, erosion, and other marine and shoreline phenomena um, associated with climate change in the Anthropocene. Um, so that's my kind of research, really. And um, I think kind of leading up to that, I grew up in Devon and um, spent a lot of time on the coast and uh, sort of really reconnected with it, actually, um, probably in the last sort of 10 years or so, sort of going back a lot to um, Dawlish, which um, if you live in the UK, you might have seen the picture back in 2013, 14, that winter um, of the kind of rail line that had kind of fallen down into the sea and was mm -hmm. just kind of kind of wafting to and fro mm -hmm. like a kind of broken necklace, you know. And it really made me think a lot about um, my sense of place and home, I guess, and how I am connected with that and how I write about that and how I think about that. And um, I sort of, you know, sort of kind of started to come up with this idea for a project, which wasn't necessarily going to be a PhD project, um, but the opportunity arose um, to you know to to do to do it as a PhD and um, I'm kind of coming to the end of that now I'm in year four <laughs> good luck <laughs> Great. Yeah. well it's yeah it's really exciting to talk to a poet um, as part of the second season where we're exploring you know how people use stories and narratives and different ways of framing and language to talk about disasters in particular and um so, like, are there many people that are using poetry in this way to talk about climate change or related issues? And are you seeing, like, a growth in the amount of people that are doing this? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I think in, well, I mean, relatively over the last 10 or so years, I suppose, since I've kind of been developing my work in that area, I've, you know, obviously been to quite a few conferences, symposia events and, and come across some really exciting poets um, working in that area. Um, I, I'll name a few, if you like, and, and sort of just sort of say a little bit about about that. Um, so um, poets like Matthew Griffiths, Rachel McCarthy, Carietta, um, for instance, who's actually an American poet who, um, I don't know if you know Carietta, but she's based at um, Bath Spa University, I think, and um, she... Uh, comes originally from America. She's written a lot about um, 
climate change and uh, as a poet mm-hmm. and I um, was really struck by her work actually when I went to the um, SIPO conference um, in Oxford uh, a couple of years ago now where we, we were discussing very much the kind of relationship between science and poetry mm-hmm. and um, particularly how we kind of think about telling these kind of stories and thinking about how what it means to kind of read and write poetry in and about the Anthropocene. Mm. Um, there's also some very interesting critical work around there, and I'd, I'd say, for instance, Sam Solnick's um, work, um, Poetry in the Anthropocene. Also, if um, people are interested in exploring poetry of um, climate change, um, Neil Astley's um, Earth Shattering Eco Poems is an anthology that came out in, I think, 2007, mm-hmm. which gives a great kind of overview, really, of um, eco poetry and its development. Um, particularly in the kind of late 20th, early 21st century. It's a relatively new term, really. It's sort of recognised yeah. uh, as that, as a development onwards, really, from nature poetry, I guess, and from environmental green poetry. Mm-hmm. So um, definitely there's... And, and if you look at that anthology, you'll find a huge, diverse um, body of work there, sort of engaging with environmental um, issues and concerns and with climate change and with disasters um, that have happened, you know, and also are predicted to take place, I guess, in the future. And would you read something for us? Yeah, a win of mine or someone else's? Oh, after you. Would you like? <laughs> we, want, we want a lot of poetry okay. reading today. So. <laughs> Let's have lots of poetry. I'd love to pick some poetry. Um, I'm g- well, why not kick off with one of mine since I brought one along? Okay. Amber. Trapped in traffic, I contemplate this glowing reptilian eye set on my finger. Its pupil of disarticulated ants suspended in the fossilised resin of extinct trees. My hands stick to the steering wheel in the heat. On the radio, scientists discuss meteor risks, agree Chelyabinsk freaked people out. But imagine a massive asteroid like the one that did for the dinosaurs striking a modern city, the presenter persists as emergency services streak past me in violet. I picture a blinding terminal flash and miles-high tsunami of debris moving faster than sound, viscous tarmac encasing cars and drivers, preserving us for millennia in an eye's blink. Wow. Yeah, I was... was, it really is quite autobiographical in that I was sitting in my car one day sort of looking as you do kind of for some kind of entertainment and sort of my eye alighted on my amber ring, which is probably the amber must be about 23 million years old and it has this kind of little ant sort of trapped in it, you know, I'm wearing it today and it actually comes from um, um, San Cristobal de las Casas in um, Mexico. And uh, the resin is from extinct trees, you know, and I was kind of pondering this as I sat in traffic and listened to this kind of this radio program. You know, about the metal about that the metal, yeah. Yeah. yeah, that was a really weird story. Do you remember it, Jason, when uh, it just kind of fell well, out of nowhere, out of the sky? Mm. Um, and the weird thing was that, you know, in Russia, people have the deck cameras because mm. of the traffic incidents and stuff. And so there was like a lot of footage of metal yeah. just falling where if it fell anywhere else in the world, we just, you just wouldn't have the footage. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah which was strange. It was so striking. And um, yeah, I just remember hearing someone discuss that, you know, if a meteor kind of hit, you know, they would travel faster than sound. So there would be this kind of, mm. maybe this kind of wall of debris. And yeah, I was really, I think it, it kind of brought home to me though, kind of, again, you know, I, I think a lot about um, our position in time, really these vast tracks of time. 
and um, you know where we are kind of sitting in that those kind of layers of deep time mm. um, and that kind of figures quite a lot in my work and obviously um, I think it's something that you become very aware of at the coast I mean you can really just sort of stand and look at the side of a cliff and see those kind of those incredible layers you know if you are in Devon for mm. instance or the Jurassic Coast you know um, it, it helps in a way position yourself but at the same time it's very hard I think for certainly for me as a non-scientist to kind of think about those kind of vast periods of time and our place in them and what that means for us thinking about ourselves now and the effect we have on the planet. And I suppose poems have kind of always played a role in telling the stories about the change, right? Mm. Whether that change in climate or change in landscape. And if we take folklore, like mm. there, are, there are a lot of ballads that kind of tell us about change, right? And we don't even know where they come from. So for you, why, why is that so important to write poetry about change? Um, I mean, we're at... <laughs> I think it's something that I've been interested in because I grew up around an estuarine kind of area. So, you know, a place where, and if you're growing up near the coast as well, and you know, you're seeing these kind of very rapid changes sometimes. And I have always really been interested in, in how I respond, you know, how people respond to that. Um, it's a very pertinent time at the moment in particular, I think, in terms of our awareness of change and our impact on the planet and how things, you know, how things are changing very rapidly in mm -hmm. some areas so that interests me because I suppose I'm writing about something that um it, you know we're very aware of at the moment and it's something that is constantly developing and changing you kind of think as a poet how do I respond to this mm. you know I'm not a scientist um how do I kind of make sense of these kind of things that are happening and I think that's um one of the drivers for me you know because it's something I'm interested in and I want to explore it and as a poet I explore you know through telling stories or through through thinking about also poetic form and how um, poetry itself as a form um, is perhaps in some ways can be adaptable, can be experimental, can sort of um, look at new ways to kind of talk about about something that we're developing and understanding of. And do you find it easy to engage people through poetry with kind of thinking about climate change maybe or hazards? Well, I think there is a lot of interest. I mean, we've seen this kind of playing out in the last few years. It's been a very interesting time to do a PhD, actually, on poetry and climate change, because um, obviously there have been, um, you know, huge kind of movements in terms of the school strikes and the mm -hmm. Extinction Rebellion and, um, you know, the Green Deal in America and so on. Um, so people are engaged, clearly. And I mean, you know, we've seen this in the reactions across the world with the issue of climate change. Um, poetry, on the other hand... Um, Obviously, there are audiences for poetry and established audiences for poetry and where that crosses over into environmental concerns as well. We see that in kind of eco-poetry um, or nature poetry, I suppose. But in terms of people's interest in reading and writing, I think there is an interest there for sure. And one of the things that poetry can offer, I think, is to tell these stories and kind of engage with new audiences mm -hmm. and also offer people an opportunity to express their own feelings and kind of explore those feelings um, through writing. Um, and make connections with each other. Mm. And um, definitely, I mean, I think technology has opened up new ways of doing this as well. I mean, we've seen the rise of things like Insta poetry um, and people sharing, obviously, their work online, making poetry films and things like that. So it isn't necessarily just kind of reading it off a page. You know, there's many other ways that poetry can engage with people as well. And there's some really exciting projects, actually, science and poetry projects that have happened um, 
you know, such as Cape Farewell, for instance, a few years ago, but there's been some other projects and um, even sort of on the micro level, you know, I did a placement recently with the Yorkshire Wildlife Trust up in um, Spurn on the Humber Estuary. And that was all about kind of engaging people with the wildlife and the changing environment at Spurn through poetry. What would you say sets poetry apart from other forms of communicating about issues? What does it allow you to do differently? Well, again, I mean, I think it's kind of immediate. It can be in a very immediate form. I mean, you know, there are lots of spoken word events now and lots of performance opportunities. Mm. So in that way, um, I think, you know, for a start, that's been it's been interesting to see, um, you know, a real rise in the interest in performance poetry and seeing people do spoken word. There's mm. a huge scene here in Nottingham, for example. Yeah. And that's a very immediate way for people to share ideas and kind of share their work and get feedback on it, too. So that's that's one thing about it. I think as well, it's such an old form, you know, it goes so far back in our history of telling stories it's very much embedded in the way that we think about telling stories I think Mm. Um, and as I say it's quite a fluid form as well I mean there's opportunities for some really experimental writing such as you see sort of radical landscape poetry of people like Harriet Tarlow um, possibly Wendy Mulford and writers like that you know who use the page in different kinds of way um, as well so I mean there's the opportunities to be a bit more experimental and um, really think about how you might use um the form to kind of bring across the message as well, I guess, mm. that you're trying to convey. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think as well there's a long history of kind of what, you know, if you think of nature poetry and these kind of concerns that are coming through, for instance, about the environment, um, you know, you're going back quite a long way really in how that's kind of developed moving forward into more kind of perhaps focused concerns that are informed by um, science and research you know and the opportunities I think for working together so there's some like I say there's been some there's some very interesting projects that I've noticed happening um, there was one down in Plymouth recently with Ben Smith and um, was doing a project with marine research I think but um, it's just a, you can see this kind of use of um, data and modeling in his work and how he's responded to that that I thought was very interesting mm. so I'm um, kind of really thinking about perhaps how we might kind of bring across um, some of the data and the research in our poems mm. and what aesthetic uh, kind of impact that might have as well. So I think it's very it's, it's very exciting, you know, and I think poetry opens itself up to those kind of um, interactions. One of the things that that stands out to me is that in a lot of poetry there's so much embedded meaning Mm. and things that you know if we look at a lot of poetry say with a group we can kind of unpack different things when you're communicating to different audiences through poetry some of the meaning could be lost when you're trying to talk about um, complex issues so Mm. there must be some challenges in communicating about um, disasters and climate change maybe you could talk about that a little bit Ali yeah, I mean, so some of the challenges, I mean, for instance, I think um, there is that, there is the danger of it, of disaster tourism, you know, of that kind of, of, of kind of being, gravitating towards something and perhaps kind of having, you know, really you have to examine your kind of reasons for doing that for a start, you know, why are you kind of writing about this topic and what can you do as a creative writer, you know, to, to, um, to represent that in the in in a way that I guess is meaningful, mm. um, so that is one challenge for for certain, and I think that's one of the reasons why writers are kind of working in some cases more with scientists and with researchers, you know, to try and kind of make sure their work is underpinned 
by fact and that mm. you know it is responding to that even if it doesn't necessarily go you know in uh, for instance use a great deal of the data but it is kind of underpinning it with kind of fact so that's mm. that's important I think I think another challenge um you know you were saying about that kind of loss of that sort of erosion if you like or loss of kind of embedded meaning I think that's there's always going to be an element of so I mean if poets there are so many different kinds of approaches in poetry I think and for some people for sure they're writing in ways that um do need to be unpacked at quite a sophisticated level but I would say that it is generally the case that okay you might read a poem and if you're not um you know if you're not a regular reader of poetry if you're not a traditional poetry audience or whatever you are still going to get something from that mm. um I don't think that it's necessarily that you're going to miss a maybe a crucial meaning but what you might miss is the is the kind of there, there might be it might sometimes drop out a little bit in terms of the um you know the formal kind of way that a poet's approached it or perhaps there are kind of more linked meanings and more kind of layers to that that you could unpack mm-hmm. but you don't necessarily need to but I do think that as well I mean there is you know people tend to pick and choose don't they they'll kind of read through and if something doesn't really kind of appeal to them they might well move on to something else that does um you know it's an art form and at the end of the day the way that people engage with it is sort of up to the people who are engaging with it up to a point isn't it um but yeah there is there is always those kind of there are those challenges for sure and um I think they're things that people are very uh, kind of mindful about and hence this kind of interest in underpinning poetry and creative work with with fact and with with this kind of these discussions that go beyond perhaps the poetry world and the literary world and you know and kind of cross those kind of um you know divides if you like and and sort of um you know there are explorations aren't they really that sometimes work and sometimes maybe don't yeah and it's interesting you know and we've had the discussion before Mm -hmm. Ali how um I find it very difficult to engage with poetry on a piece of paper Mm. but when I listen to a poem being read to me I can kind of you know I can hear the meaning yeah somehow it's the audible message that is much more um is much deeper Mm-hmm. than what I read and I, I don't know what, what it is that's wrong with me <laughs> <laughs> no I don't um, think there's anything wrong with you <laughs> I think I think poetry I mean this has been a long sort of discussion about poetry and about how it lives um off the page as well yeah. and it's it's very much a kind of you know an oral form and it's you know it's that interplay it's not to say that I mean I am a poet who likes to work both on the page and on the stage a mm. little bit and um, I think that, you know, you can do both. And I think that for certain, I mean, this is the reason why poetry readings do get quite big audiences. You know, mm. I went to something a couple of, we went to a couple of days ago, didn't we? And the we room was packed, you know, people yeah. were really interested to hear the work. Um, that doesn't mean that they won't necessarily read it as well, but they're experiencing it in a different way. And it is different to hear, a, I think, particularly a poet read their own work. They're going to bring a different nuance to it too. Yeah. You know, but so that's, it's interesting you know it's great to have that opportunity to hear people read their work always I think um so why don't you read yeah more for us okay um oh gosh well actually one of the things I'm quite I am quite lucky to have been doing is sort of spending some time actually on the coast I've not just been sort of chained to my computer trying to (laughs) type up my thesis you know I've actually been out and about as well and um I have sort of been doing some field trips really over the past couple of years um along the Suffolk coast I've also been to Orkney you know I've been to Devon and sort of around Wales so um to lots of different places but um I have been mainly writing about the east coast 
And um, I thought I would perhaps read um, a poem or maybe even a couple of poems from my East Coast sequence, if you like. Um, so this one is called Shingle Street, which is a natural place on the Suffolk coast, um, on the sort of at the mouth of the River Ore. Um, and um, it's a place with kind of incredible amount of biodiversity um, of um you know, but it's also a place where the landscape is constantly changing and is under kind of um, threat, if you like, from, from sea level change as well. So. Anglers pulling on waterproofs auger a bucketing, an unstable cold front moving in over Shingle Street's houses, bared teeth in the mouth of the oar. Bad weather isn't just bad weather anymore. I am attentive to shifting shores, Fortifications, searching for ways in or out. A lone union flag flutters between bungalow frontline and Hollisley Bay. Martello towers ward shingle habitats. CP, sea kale, sedum, Mediterranean red valerian. Heads down, roots resilient. An elderly man in a window raises his keep calm mug as I pelt over pebbles in drenching rain. But there's no cover for miles, save a break of trees, a leeward wall, my car. <laughs> I was drenched when I was on the single street. <laughs> I really was. And, um, you know, it's a place where it's a very interesting sort of area. Um, and again, if you're, I'm going to kind of you know, say, if you're interested in the poetry, read Blake Morrison's mm. Shingle Street, which is a great collection, out, which came out in 2015. Wendy Mulford has written about the Suffolk coast and the Norfolk coast um, in the East Anglian sequences. I think that book's called a beautiful book. And um, also um, W.G. Sebold, The Rings of Saturn, which kind of appears to be a travel log of kind of walking along the coast but actually it's so much more than that so there's some wonderful sort of um, writing about these coasts for me I think I'm obviously very interested in the um, not only the sea change that's happening there you know the coastal change and the coastal defenses but also the military history and how there's this kind of quite uncanny kind of thing that's happening around the coast this aspect to it where you know these kind of burials and re-emergences these kind of uncanny sort of re-emergences of old um uh, wartime defences and things like that and crumbling kind of pillboxes into the sea and things like that mm -hmm. so very much those kind of layers of history and kind of different ideas of defence and kind of what is a threat I guess as well um, which I find really interesting so certainly quite a bit of that comes through in mm -hmm. some of my poems too I wonder if you've ever been to Dunwich. No. So Dunwich is also on the Suffolk coast um, and it was an important sort of Anglo-Saxon and medieval port. Um, but most of the town has been lost to coastal erosion and storms. Um, and so it's only a kind of very small village now. Um, and uh, and I'm, I'm kind of fascinated by kind of these, again, these sort of remains of, of places, you know, and you kind of have the, the sort of um, crumbling graveyards into the sea and that kind of you know there's a last gravestone left from the old church mm -hmm. and things like that and everything else kind of tumbled over the cliff and and so on so that's Dunwich and it's it's kind of the poster child really for coastal erosion I suppose isn't it and, <laughs> in that way 
Um, so I'm going to start with an epigraph by W.G. Sebold, actually, from Rings of Saturn. And he says, Human civilization has been no more than a strange luminescence of which no one can say when it will begin to wane and when it will fade away. Mirage. Late afternoon, slack as the greyish, brownish, barely breathing sea. Sizewell B's sci-fi citadel glitters somewhere ahead. Dunwich lies beneath, beyond us. Holding the museum trail map, so it overlays our present view with the long-lost town in Faximil. We raise streets, roofs, ships out of heat haze, shimmering, unstable variations. Time stretches and retracts. A figure spills bluish down the blurred corridor between low, crumbling cliffs and lulling cloud water. Displaced. Dwindling. Amazing. But, you know, so when, when you write these poems, I know that you engage a lot with people and you talk mm. a lot with people who live there. Mm. Um, so how do they tell you about the change that you can then translate this, for a choice of a better word, into a poem? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because I've I've sort of... I've discussed this before about actually sort of... The, the, you're getting some of the poems and there's actually some connective tissue between them in my um, collection, which is about this kind of... Um, what it is to come to a place and not be from there and kind of then have to, you know, to kind of approach the issues of that place, I suppose, mm. as a visitor, um, as someone not from there. And there are discussions around this in terms of, um, you know, writing about places that where you're, you're not from that place. And I think that obviously as an outsider, you bring a new perspective um, to to a new place you know and you you are going to kind of react to it in a different kind of way from people who live there so that's the first thing um but I think in terms of talking to people I do and I don't I mean I have um in Devon for instance obviously as I was saying that's a place that I do come from and I know really well so I'm kind of reacting to a much longer family history when I'm writing about that of that place and the change at that place around Dawlish and the accessory um when I go to somewhere like Suffolk for instance I've actually never been to Suffolk before I was doing this project and you know sometimes the um conversations that actually stay with you and influence you are the ones that you don't necessarily expect or the things that people say that kind of lodge in your mind as a kind of you know actually there was a research you're just having a drink in the bar and I mean I was I was sort of sat in the pub at Haysborough and kind of fell into conversation with um the landlord um actually I shouldn't say who it was <laughs> probably <laughs> anyway uh because but I said you know oh gosh apparently the you know it's very rapid kind of um erosion going on there you know and um they're really living on on the edge I said to him you know how do you how do you feel you know how do you feel about this and he said well how do you think I feel and I thought well that's exactly it you know <laughs> it's like how do you how do I think you feel you know I mean I know I can empathize and you can put yourself but unless you're actually living somewhere and living with it on a day-to-day sort of basis and having to kind of face those things um you know I'm not going to be able to write about it in that way you know no matter how much kind of research I do or how much time I spend in a place so I'm always coming to it as an outsider and as a writer um what I hope I do is that I that people would understand that I come to it in that spirit of um telling a story and thinking about um the place of those sort of stories in in how how we think about change and how we also remember that you know in 
in Britain, you're never more than 75 miles from the sea. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, what affects the coast affects all of us in the end. Um, and uh, and so, you know, this isn't just a situation for people living in coastal communities. This is a situation for all of us. And, you know, that kind of opens out, of course, more to, although I'm focusing on, on the British coast, yeah. it actually opens much more to that global kind of conversation, you know, about what's happening um, more widely uh, in the world. And for some people, of course, it's a much more urgent and pressing concern. tried to use poetry as a tool to get people telling you what's happening mm. you know with their landscapes and with them through their poetry yeah um actually just recently so I was uh, working with the wildlife trust up at Spurn and um you know it was actually a kind of participatory project so I was working with um the children we did a national poetry day um workshop and um, where they were writing about their kind of experience of visiting Spurn actually and what it's like to kind of live in that area um the wildlife the habitat you know um and thinking about the words we use for nature for instance how they use the words they use to describe their experience of of living there and then you know also I was running some workshops with adults and families as well and one of the projects we did actually we had people writing postcards so they were writing a kind of postcard um from Spurn, if you like, and kind of talking about what that place means to them. Because this is a rapidly eroding kind of coastline, you know, they're losing about two meters on average a year. And actually just from time to time you go down there, you see the real changes, the car park flooded with the seawater, you know, after a storm and mm. um, what happens when a surge comes, you know, how quickly there's sort of that changes the aspect of the beach, you know, the kind of debris that's left afterwards, the problems for people to get to and fro, you know. Um, I, I think that, that kind of project for me is really powerful because um, I see people kind of really thinking about what it is to just go and write in a wild place and think about the kind of language they're using and how they tell their stories or tell the story of that place. And um, in that project, one of the things that I think worked really well was that Andrew Mason, um, who's the heritage officer at Spurn, um, actually led a guided walk. So we went out and kind of walked around the site and discussed it. And then people came back and kind of wrote about you know and kind of incorporated some of that information as well mm -hmm. into their poems and those poems are now in dis on display in the lighthouse at Spurn until March so we've oh, actually got a kind of you know so people could, who are visiting the lighthouse can read the poems mm -hmm. from the project so I hope that that kind of opens things up for other people and for me of course it's very interesting as a writer to kind of see how people frame their kind of experience and how they um, use language to kind of tell those stories because um, and this is something that there's a project which I really love called Dark Mountain mm. and the Dark Mountain Project and they kind of have talked a lot about the role of storytellers and writers in, um, you know, in telling these sorts of, these kind of stories and kind of thinking about these new kind of realities and the reality of what we're facing and how we talk about those uh, creatively, you know, as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I've seen, like, to some extent, storytelling and exploration of narratives used with communities to talk about disasters and the, their impacts and experiences. But I, I mean, I don't know about you, Ksenia, I haven't seen many people using 
poetry as a medium to engage with communities. Not at all, yeah. Yeah, we really need people to start uh, exploring what that would look like in terms of like researchers engaging with communities, but also just different um, practitioners as well, you know. Yeah. Wouldn't it be fascinating to engage with local poets, right, as well? No. Um, whether current, but also engage with kind of local um, traditional poetry, maybe. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know anything about really disaster poetry. I think it would be very interesting. I mean, you know, for instance, I mean, it, on a basic level, you know, to ask people to write. I mean, of course, there's the writing about our feelings. You know, there's been this kind of term that's come up, um, the solastasia, which is a portmanteau of um, the words solace and nostalgia. And it's kind of talking about that idea of the sense of home when home is lost and how you're homesick for a place that is still there but it's still but it's lost to you through this kind of change and you know there's been a lot of discussion about kind of distress that's caused um you know to people obviously who've experienced these kind of losses Mm. but also to people just in terms of the distress caused by contemplating the future and contemplating what's happening um environmentally and so I think that sometimes writing can also provide a space a different space for that sorrow and grieving and Mm. a way of kind of maybe working through those feelings and expressing those feelings and sharing those ideas um and writing as well as a way of sometimes concentrating your thoughts because of course we interrupt you know when we're talking and discussing things or we we flip from one subject to another but it's actually a way of kind of maybe focusing how Mm. people feel and kind of bringing those ideas across um and um yeah I mean I think poetry is a wonderful medium for for expressing ideas and feelings and it's something that I've kind of struggled with a little bit because obviously mine's a research project as well and I'm thinking kind of objectively and I'm kind of writing um in an academic in academic language if you like using Mm. academic but also I'm trying to think emotionally and creatively Mm. and kind of respond to this I am responding to this on an emotional and creative level um and I also feel these feelings of distress and kind of um you know grief really and loss you know as well and so I'm kind of finding, trying to find that way to to bring those things together, really. I think think about it objectively, but also respond to it emotionally, you know. And I think it's fascinating because I guess as academics, we're almost banned from feeling emotions, right? Mm. We have mm. to be kind of cold and measured mm. um, in the way we write. And I guess that's the use of passive voice and mm. kind of removal of oneself from yeah. what it is we write from words, uh, which doesn't help. When we try to communicate. Well, it's a strange beast, a creative critical PhD, because it is a kind of, <laughs> you know, you are very much thinking about how those kind of synthesise together. And there's lots of different approaches to that. But I definitely think there is a role for poets and storytellers um, in, I guess, you know, telling those stories that make us kind of help us to make sense of that kind of disruption mm-hmm. and uncertainty. Yeah, well, hopefully some of our listeners will feel challenged by this and start to think about ways that they can engage with poets and uh, maybe even think about expanding their creative abilities too. Yeah, indeed. And we had poetry reading, in fact, at the IRA conference last year, mm-hmm. um, which was amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, and the poetry read it in Italian and then it was translated into English, mm-hmm. yeah. which is a challenge in itself, as, yeah. as you know. I mean, I think I, I it is, and I think it's I think it's great. I I would love to see that happen more often. And as I say, I think there are some interest. You know, there are some there have been some very interesting projects. You know, the Weatherfronts project that took place in Free Word a couple of years ago, um, 
the projects uh, like Cape Farewell, you know, which you mm-hmm. can have a look at online where, po- you know, writers and artists and scientists have come together to sort of work um, on projects together and many more, you know. So I really hope that, you know, that is something that will happen even more, really, mm-hmm. when it's, you know, when it's possible. That's great. Well, thanks for spending time with us, Ali. It's been really lovely. Lovely. Thank you for having me. You have been listening to Ksenia, Jason and me, Ali Stoneman on Disasters Deconstructed Podcast.